HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival on May 8th and 9th. Learn more at womennourish.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We're talking about bubbles. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. And I think it's emerged as a bulbous tea shops, a site of Asian-American youth uh, identity building. We're called the invisible industry because these products you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Speaking Broadly. I'm Dana Cowan, your host, and today I'm bringing you a very special conversation from a panel that I moderated at the New York Historical Society in New York City. The panel was called The Journey of Chinese Food in America, and my guests were two outstanding women. Jing Gao, who's the founder of Fly by Jing, which is a company bringing uncensored Chinese flavors to the table. I'm obsessed with her chili crisp, but anything that Jing produces, you have to check out and try. And my other guest is the professor, Heather Lee, who lives in Shanghai and is at the NYU program there. She researches and teaches on the topic of migration between Asia and North America at a time when there's been an increase in abominable anti-Asian hate crimes. We today on this panel use food to examine the history of anti-Chinese sentiment in the U.S. from the past to the present time. I hope you find sustenance and the conversation. I'm in New York City. Um, Heather is in Shanghai and Jing is in Los Angeles. So welcome guys. I'm so, so uh, happy that you're joining me. Um, just to give everyone who's listening a, a little bit of background, I launched something called Giving Broadly, and uh, I, the result was a website with 40 incredible products, 43 extraordinary women, and um, for consumers to discover 
delicious food that's going to change their life. And one of the people whose life you would absolutely change by having her product is Jingao. Um, her Fly by Jing products changed my life during quarantine. Um, I can't tell you how much you can use chili crisp, which I didn't know, but like on ice cream, on toast, on peanut butter, and all the ways that you're supposed to use it. And so um, when I was talking to Valerie about how I could bring giving broadly to life, she introduced me to Heather, who's such an extraordinary historian. And I, I just, I wanna be an eavesdropper on the conversation between these amazing women. Um, so welcome and thank you. Uh, so, you know, when we began thinking about this conversation, um, the, the context was slightly different. I'm really excited to talk to you about food, but as the rise in Asian, anti-Asian hate crimes have increased, I would be remiss to not set that as the backdrop for the conversation because Heather, you've seen it um, historically, and I'm really interested in your historical perspective. And I'd love to see the um, use food as the lens to understand um, racism, opportunity, America, and culture, which sounds really um, dense. And I think it's incredibly interesting. And there's also food. There's also dumplings, and <laughs> you know, it's the other side of things as well. So um, I would love to just talk to you first about what. Uh, Heather, what motivated you to research and teach on migration between Asia and North America, um, obviously from a historical perspective to the uh, present? Yeah, I think this was a, a story that um, I think um, my father came to the United States as an immigrant, as a graduate student in the 70s. And uh, one of the things that sort of really struck me as I was beginning my intellectual journey of finding my voice as um, a, a historian was that um, we have this myth of Asian Americans being successful. And I don't want to undercut that, but for a certain generation of them, especially those who were um, graduating and trying to find a place in the workforce in the 1950s, it didn't really matter what their educational qualifications were. Oftentimes the only jobs left open to them were those in food service. And uh, this was actually the story partially of my father as well. In graduate school, the only sort of side job that he could find was working in a Chinese restaurant. And I heard this story over and over in the archive from the people I interviewed. And this sort of sparked my interest in how is it that highly qualified people, people with a lot to offer, um, become sort of trapped uh, by uh, economic opportunities in the, both the United States and Canada in uh, to the food industry. And it's not that people don't find great opportunities to sort of begin a cultural dialogue, um, as you mentioned, Diana, uh, Dana, through food. But it's, uh, it's that I wanted to sort of understand the history of that baggage. How is it that food becomes a very viable avenue and other doors become closed. So I think the my interest in this topic uh, stems from both my observation, my understanding of my father's journey, what I was seeing in the archive and what I saw sort of repeated in um, other people's journeys um, when they came to the United States for opportunity. So um, I think this is probably something personal for many people as well, how we come to sort of a racial consciousness of um, what uh, what is allowed in a certain environment and how we 
make use of that environment. And I'm happy to go through uh, other parts of the longer history, but I, I, I think that uh, maybe this isn't the best place for a history lesson, but I think that there are many sort of moments in which food has created an opening for understanding, but it's a narrow opening. And I think that's maybe one piece that I want us to focus on is that food is a genuine space of intercultural sharing, intercultural understanding, but we also have to understand the limitations of that. What sort of what opportunities that leaves behind uh, for people who are trapped in that space? That's that's really um, interesting. I, I think that uh, can you is so that's I guess the the thesis of the work you've you've built on sort of year after year. And now you're teaching in um, in Shanghai at NYU. And what what is the what are you teaching? What is the ah. is there a class topic? Yeah, yeah. So I teach a variety of courses. Um, I teach a history of Chinese migration globally starting in the late uh, 16th century. I teach a course on Asia Pacific, US, Asia relations. I teach a course on Asian American history. I teach a course on food. I teach a course on New York urban history. And I think all of those courses have one common thread that you could say runs through them, which is that um, as individuals, we are negotiating one-on-one -on -one what we think of as people-to-people -people relations and how we then build an understanding of each other as groups, but as well as how individuals negotiate a wider structural environment, that being the state, that being the economy, and a sort of pre-existing cultural ideas. So I think one of the things that I want students and as well as uh, people who encounter my work to see is the resilience of individuals, individuals who have been deeply marginalized people who have um, really sort of struggled to find a space for themselves in a rather hostile environment, that their resilience is remarkable. And we as consumers, we as historians, we as thinkers all sort of benefit from the blood, sweat, and tears that they've invested in making just Chinese food, for instance, palatable in the late 19th century at a period in which um, anti-Chinese, anti-Asian racism was really at its peak. You know, we speak now of this moment of anti-Asian violence, and I think one of the echoes for this is that Chinese lives were so cheap 150 years ago, yeah. uh, to the point where that was the common language. Their lives were expendable, and despite this sort of physical violence that they experienced in an everyday constant basis, they made an effort uh, to find a space of negotiation. And one of the most viable ones in which Americans, white Americans in particular, started changing their attitudes towards Asians and Chinese people was through food. And they did this through what I call gastro diplomacy. They said, you know, listen, you see me as competition. You see me as disease. You see me as racial pollution. Uh, but I'm not all those things. I'm respectable. I can have a family. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm really here to give um, what I can. And one of the things I can teach you about is food. And there was a remarkable um, Shanghaiese, uh, by way of Shanghai, writer um, in the late 19th century, a man named Wang Qinfu, who was based in New York and in, in the 1880s was taking journalists out to Chinatown to teach them what it was like to have a formal Chinese banquet. And his effort was really what I call gastro diplomacy was to say, you know, you think we eat rats, cats and, and, and dogs in our cuisine, 
uh, but that's abs absurd. So I think I, I'd love to get to um, the food um, yeah. later because I'm so interested in, in what was being cooked at that time. And I'd also sure. like to get to the notion of um, cheap, you know, which is really uh, cheap labor, cheap food, which is critical um, also to this conversation. Um, but first, I'd love to hear, uh, Jing, um, what motivated you to start Flyby Jing? Um, yeah, it was an extremely personal uh, motivation. I was born in Chengdu, but I grew up moving around a lot in the West. And every year of my life, I moved to a different country um, across Europe and then eventually in Canada. So I've actually never lived in the US until very recently. Um, but in my 20s, um, you know, I found myself after graduating from college in Canada, I found myself in, in China uh, on an exchange semester with my university. and. Um, that led to me actually moving there um, with a job, which at the time was in tech. And I guess that crazy childhood I had, I just kind of assumed it was normal and, you know, um, didn't realize the impact it had on my psyche and on my kind of view of myself. And I had code switched so often without even realizing what I was doing. Um, but, you know, at the age of seven, I had given myself the name Jenny to um, better fit in because I just wanted to blend in. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself. And um, that was the, the only way I knew how. And um, it wasn't until last year that I finally gained the, I guess, strength to reclaim my actual name. Um, and that's, that itself has been a 10 year journey where it started when I was in, um, in I landed in Beijing, uh, you know, like 12 years ago and was shocked by how, you know, little I knew about my own cultural heritage and started to, um, try to dig a little deeper, but the way that I was able to do so was through food. Um, that was, you know, for me, it was, it was food that was the entry point as well. And um, I was just peeling back the layers and, and um, started, you know, was like fascinated by this 5,000 year food, like culture and heritage that nobody seemed to know about outside of China. Uh, even within China, there was not a, a lot of um, preservation of that or, or awareness. And so I think um, I just started by learning myself um, and then wanting to share it with, with others like me who, you know, might be interested. And um, it was a way also for me to connect with my family. You know, we had uh, my extended family in China. I'm an only child. Um, I had gotten so distant from my grandparents, my cousins, and that was a common language we could speak as well. So it started as a very personal quest to reconnect with myself. And um, that led me to opening my, my, my restaurant in Shanghai. It led me to go to Chengdu um, and study with one of the greatest living chefs in, in, in China. Um, Who and, that? I'm oh, um, Yubo. He's um, a famous Sichuan chef. He, um, it's like between LA and Sichuan now. And um, yeah, and just really um, was trying to 
you know, figure out what was my contribution going to be to Sichuan food, to Chinese food, because I wasn't interested in just, you know, recreating or, you know, um, like faithfully recreating something, but rather, you know, for me, the only thing that felt honest was uh, something that reflected my own experience, um, having been born in Chengdu, but grew up, you know, so many different places and having the influences that I had, and also wanting to create something for for the way that we live and eat today. Um, and I, you know, all this time um, I was, you know, because of my work in food media. So I should mention, I started blogging about food. I, I started writing for um, publications uh, in the West. And so because of my like, just, you know, awareness of what was happening in food media in, in the US in particular, I knew that First of all, US media does dictate a lot of global culture and the way that we view people and cultures and things. Um, but I, yeah, was, you know, not, I, I don't think I fully understood. Um, and I learned from, you know, reading like Heather's work, for example, but like, I, I was aware that there was a lot of um, false narratives that existed about Chinese cuisine. And um, so it became, you know, really important to me to, try to eradicate some of that to, to because what I saw on the ground was so dynamic that, you know, it was um, almost boundless in the way that it was still evolving and constantly, you know, innovating. Uh, whereas in the West, there also seemed to be kind of a preoccupation with trying to keep Chinese uh, food as it is or in kind of a moment in time. And, um, you know, terms like authenticity and, you know, these kind of, um, uh, things that serve to kind of box the cuisine in. And I, what I saw on the ground though in, in Chengdu um, with like these new school kind of, you know, restaurants run by young people, there, there were no rules. Mm -hmm. um, Sichuan cuisine is such a resilient cuisine because over centuries it has adapted and evolved with trade with, you know, chili peppers coming in only like a couple hundred years ago. And it was such a dynamic thing and, and full of life. And I knew that, you know, um, without evolution, a food culture will eventually die, right? And so, so those were questions in my mind, like, what is my contribution going to be? And also, you know, wanting to shift kind of, you know, perspectives um, in the West about Chinese food. And so, eventually, that took the form of me, um, well, I started actually by cooking, and I, I was, um, you know, cooking kind of my take on modern Sichuan flavors that were really like like me rooted in tradition because I was sourcing these ingredients that I had spent years you know developing those relationships and from my training with you know that chef I knew and I understood the importance of ingredients to what you cook because different grades of ingredients different types like will render completely different results um, and and it was you know some of the, uh, then the ingredients that I was using for my dinners, these were extremely rare, uh, even within China, because it's a huge country. Uh, things are, you know, really high quality things are really high in demand. Most of them have never made their way to the West um, because there was no demand, because there was no awareness of these products. But also on top of that, there was active prejudice against uh, the, the products, right? So if you know, if people are being told, if producers are being told that consumers are not willing to pay more than like $2 for something, there's no incentive to put anything of quality into it. Um, so 
so, you know, when I was cooking my dinners, I was doing these pop-ups in cities all over the world. I had to carry suitcases of ingredients with me and, you know, people were, and I got instant feedback from them as well. When I was cooking for them, it was like hundreds, if not thousands of people just, you know, instantly light up because great flavor is universal, but they uh, had never heard of these ingredients, didn't know about, you know, flavor profiles, didn't know much about Sichuan cuisine. And so that was kind of the, <clears throat> the, um, the realization that there was a gap to potentially fill. Um, and initially, I think when we first launched about two years ago as this branded, you know, sauce company, um, my MO at the time was really just to change people's minds and like, you know, have them, um, you know, our packaging was really like bright and unconventional. And the point there was really just to stop people in their tracks and like have them wonder why they expect a Chinese food to look differently. Um, I think over time, though, um, you know, our, our brand and our values and kind of what we're here to do has shifted a little. I think um, it's it's gone from, you know, in the beginning, it was very defense. It was almost like coming from the defensive. Um, I felt like I was constantly defending my right to exist and for this brand to exist. Cause everybody was telling me like, Oh, like, you know, no one's going to accept this. It's too expensive. Chinese food should be cheap or, you know, uh, Chinese food is too niche. Like there's no market. And, but as we grew and grew, you know, and also as I evolved and I reclaimed my, my power in my, in my name, um, I think our brand has evolved too. So now it's less, <clears throat> it's less kind of like um, defensive and more just like we are here and we deserve to be here. And we're also not only that, we're creating space for more voices, more diverse voices to exist as well. I think that, you know, in the way that the brands evolved and you rebranded the, the packaging, it's really to bring the story front and center, um, which I think is so valuable because, you know, what we cook at home influences the way that we think, same way that eating in a restaurant influences the way we think about culture. Um, Heather, I was, I was curious, you know, when the Chinese came to America and were cooking in America and cooking in restaurants, um, I was curious what Jing brings up about this notion of authenticity mm. and equality and um, what were people able to make, you know, back in, I mean, you go back to like 1950, 1852-ish, you know, in the research, I guess. I'm just, I'm curious and who was eating at the restaurants and like, what, what was their, what was their thinking? Uh yeah, I, I, I really want to first um, say thank you to Jing for the way you formulated authenticity, the way it's sort of talked about as a terminal end. Uh, I thought that was such a beautiful phrasing because in many ways it's it encapsulates sort of the struggle to speak, right? The struggle to live, the struggle to be in the moment. That is often not just the experience of Chinese immigrants, but many racialized populations that we are more than this flattened image. Uh, but to answer the question about what, what was Chinese food like in sort of the earliest iterations, starting with Chinese restaurants of the 1850s, is that these restaurants were aimed towards a Chinese audience um, in that they were oftentimes opened at the behest of a leader in the community, usually somebody wealthy, um, a businessman, uh, most likely, who was looking for a space to entertain um, his 
what he sees as his collaborators. So there's a Chinese concept called guanxi and it's relationship building. And one of the important ways in which you relationship build is to host large dinners, uh, either for a festive event. So these early Chinese restaurants were really about um, building relationships of Chinese leaders to locals, to other Chinese. And they were a lot, a lot of the food was very inward facing. So you would have, um, you know, uh, typical items of a Cantonese banquet show up um, on these menus as were, well. uh, uh, you know, the classic items would be shark fin uh, soup as well as bird's nest soup. And they would very often appear on these menus. Um, so I would say that the first Chinese restaurants were really for the Chinese, speaking to the Chinese about a language of what it means to be Chinese in this diasporic space. Um, and were the ingredients coming from China? So they're really like yeah. shark fin, and because that's so interesting, right? Jing's talking about how hard it is to, you know, get these rare ingredients, and we have not been exposed to it recently, you know, in America. Yet it sounds like. Uh, back yeah. because of trade and because of immigration, they're actually worthy ingredients to be cooking with. Yeah, um, I would say that they existed, but they were um, very rare and hard to, to get. Um, so some of the first immigrants um, were these, um, these international traders. So they would be, uh, they came to California um, out of an interest actually to sell to the American market. Um, so they were, you know, and as well as to bring American products to China via Hong Kong. So these were very adept businessmen. They had very robust um, international uh, relationships with uh, traders and ships uh, going across the Pacific. They were really building those connections uh, for the United States uh, to China. Um, of course, these sort of networks uh, spread uh, uh, eastward as um, their networks grew as well, um, but they were still very expensive. So there's these great archaeological studies that sort of indicate that the kind of trickle down effect of these um, uh, migrant networks is that ordinary Chinese immigrants, uh, so people who were working for wages, were able to eat um, uh, imported goods, imported preserved vegetables, um, as well as um, dried fishes that came from all around the Pacific through these networks. Um, uh, it's not clear how much they eat of it, but it's important to note that they were able to afford these things very far away from where they were sourced. It, it seems that um, in what I read of your work, the, uh, the restaurants were sort of the Chinese feeding the Chinese and the Americans were horrible customers, right? Because they, I mean, they had devalued the cuisine and they wouldn't spend the money on it. And it seems like the beginning of devaluing the ingredients in the food has a very long history. Yeah, and I think this gets to what um, uh, Jing has mentioned as this struggle to create space for Chinese food that is high quality and for consumers to enter a conversation with this assumption that products are high quality and I'm willing to pay a premium price for that. Um, this, I think, um, is born of both a lack of understanding, but also a refusal to understand. Um, I had mentioned a man named uh, uh, Wang, uh, Wang Fuqin, who was um, teaching journalists um, to eat Chinese food and in hopes that they would write about it and teach other people how to appreciate. Uh, one of the sort of 
twist of that story is that eating Chinese food in places like New York, in places like San Francisco, um, really became uh, understood as a challenge to manhood. And what I mean that is, you know, when a man sort of says uh, to his friend, hey, let's go test our, our ability to eat the most dangerous cuisines, sounds kind of familiar, right, today. Let's go test one another to eat the most dangerous cuisines by going to Chinatown and eating a dinner of rats. So that was sort of the joke that it became of this effort to broker understanding. Um, and so I see sort of the beginnings of uh, adventurous eating, this hyper-masculine language of using food to prove themselves as being born of this moment of an effort to bridge cultural understanding. So we still have a lot of I think baggage that is connected to that moment. Um, the cheapness of Chinese food and where the assumption that Chinese food should become should be cheap to customers is comes out of a slightly later moment. So there was a visit by a really important uh, Chinese official, the highest Chinese official to come from um, to come and visit the United States. It's a man named Li Hongzhang um, in 1896, and his visit uh, creates this myth that uh, chop suey was made by him, it was eaten by him, and it was enjoyed by him. And uh, white Americans started going to Chinatown and as well as um, Chinese restaurants across, you know, when they started moving out of, of Chinatown itself, um, in a hopes to sort of participate in uh, an idea of that they were being sophisticated by eating chop suey. Um, it's, 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 it's a myth. Uh, Li Hongzhang never ate chop suey. Um, he, there's no way that he would have experienced it. But this sort of misunderstanding, uh, both perpetuated by journalists and as well as embraced by Chinese immigrants who are trying to sort of create a, a market for their goods, um, gives us this, this, this exact tension that Chinese food should be accessible, it should be available, and it should be cheap for us. So, oh, sorry, I just had a question about the chop suey because I know you've written about chop suey palaces and like my, um, I guess I, I don't know much about the, you know, the history here, but like chop suey palaces seemed like they were high end. Uh, so I guess what was the transition between that, um, you know, fancy get dressed up, it's called a palace to, you know, dirty, cheap Chinese food. <laughs> Well, I think they it goes from dirty cheap to fancy and modern. Uh, I, I would say that chop suey palaces were not fancy in the sense that it was still affordable. So uh, I'll give you an example. From about 1925 in both Chicago and New York, chop suey palaces sort of emerge um, in many different places. But uh, it costs about $1.25 to take a date out for a menu for two. So um, this is really sort of, it's about, $25, I guess you could say, uh, for inflation, if you calculate for inflation. So this is really affordable for um, young men who are looking to impress uh, a, a woman that he's courting or any other kinds of romantic situations. And I situate this in romantic situations because this was really, Chinese restaurants become a space for um, uh, white courtship. It is a place where men could show off how worldly they were. Women have access to experiences that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. There was dancing involved, live music. Um, so Chinese food was fancy in the sense that it made people feel like they were really engaging in a wider world that wasn't part of their everyday lives. Um, but it was modern um, in the sense that uh, Chinese restaurants were really trying to 
trying to engage what uh, was common, a common form of pastime uh, for uh, young single uh, um, white urbanites at that time. So that was music, food and dancing and performance. All those things were part of the chop suey palaces and they tended to be very large, physically very large as a way of saying, you know, we are different from the cheap Chinese restaurants um, and uh, they would host hundreds if some of them occasionally up to the low thousands per night. Um, so um, fancy in the sense that they were monumental, uh, but not in terms of cost. Uh, they tried to be really affordable. We need to take a quick break for our sponsors and then we'll be right back after the break. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival. This Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, EscapeMaker.com will present the first annual Women in Food and Farming Festival at Stone Ridge Orchard in New York's Hudson Valley. That's just two hours outside of New York City and Ulster County. The two-day hybrid live and virtual event open to the public will honor and celebrate women-owned businesses in the food, farm, and craft beverage spaces and provide entrepreneur resources. A live farmer's market on May 8th will host dozens of women farmers and craft beverage and food producers, with products ranging from cakes and cookies to fresh veggies and honey to hot sauces and teas, all locally sourced and produced. For those not able to attend in person, there will be a virtual experience on May 9th. It will include 25 online tours, demos, and educational presentations on various topics on demand for the public and trade. Learn more at womennourish.com. Jing, I was wondering, you had so many, or it seems like, I, I might be wrong, but it seemed like a lot of people saying, you know, no one's going to pay that amount of money, you know, um, for a Chinese condiment. And um, you know, there were so many objections and there was so much um, reluctance to believe that the ingredients could be, you know, fantastic and high end. But when you actually brought Fly by Jing to market, was there any pushback at all? I mean, the only thing that I've seen is sort of infinite love and you, you know, um, having things on pre-order because the demand is so high. So... Um, was there ever a moment that you were worried about the, the pricing or people just, you know, um, just wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, okay, so we, we sell our sauces for about $15. Um, it is high if you compare it to a $2 um, hot sauce, but um, it's not if you compare it to other $15 hot sauces of which there are plenty, right? Um, so I think, you know, it is not unreasonable in that sense. Um, and I think um, it is only a shock when you are comparing it to the only other Chinese sauce on the market, which at the time was just Lagama, right? <clears throat> So that you can get in Chinatown for like one or $2. Um, of course, our product is completely um, different in that, um, I mean, it's, it's a very personal product to, to me because it has um, 
you know, the sourcing that goes into it, the craft that goes into it, everything is informed by my experiences. The, there's like 18 plus ingredients in, in our sauce um, that are meticulously sourced. There's no preservatives, there's no artificial ingredient, uh, artificial flavorings. Whereas, you know, a lot of other products rely on the crutch of MSG, for example, right? Um, and so for us, we're using expensive ingredients to layer those umami flavors. Um, so I think, you know, there was the, um, there was the, ingredient side and the fact that there's no added, you know, no um, artificial additives. But I think a lot of it is also kind of bringing it to life through storytelling as well. Like we launched via Kickstarter and we became the highest funded craft food project on Kickstarter. And that was largely due to the way the story was told. You know, I don't think that if we just slapped something on there with $15, they would have, you know, had like, you know, 3000 people back us. It was, um, the video that I made um, that really, you know, brought a personal uh, angle to it. It was my story. It was, um, it brought the sights and smells and sounds of Chengdu alive. Um, and it really just talked about the, um, this, it brought to life actually like the, the heritage, the, the 5,000 year heritage that exists that has really never made its way here in its true form, right? Um, and, and it was very accessible as well. So I think that, um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think at the end of the day, like, um, we, we all want a story. And this, you know, when this story is real and like palpably real and, and you can see it in, in my uh, story as a founder and, you know, come to life in the product. Um, I think that was, that that's the thing that has um, allowed us to grow so, so um, through so much like organic, like word of mouth. Um, but yes, we've had a ton of resistance. Um, there's, but I think that there's always been more people who embraced us than the detractors, right? Because otherwise we wouldn't have grown to the, to the point where we are today. Um, we, you know, and your, your pandemic growth has been off the charts, right? The Right. Yeah. I mean, I think since, since the beginning, we were growing about 30% month over month, um, but then a year into it last year, exactly at this time um, last year, when lockdown, you know, happened, we it, like just overnight kind of tripled our sales. And then the New York Times, uh, Sam Sifton wrote about us, which, you know, I had no idea that was happening, but, you know, he interviewed me and he was like, ah, I might put it in a story. It ended up being <laughs> multi-page spread in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. That was a the complete feature on on my story and and the product and so that just was insane and and that was that came at a time where I did have a lot of uncertainty and fear because you know we were starting to see more and more racist you know comments on our socials people saying like stuff like oh is there bats in this product or you know um, I mean just any kind of unimaginable, they were all very unimaginative, <laughs> very similar kind of comments. But anyway, um, they, you know, so I was not sure what was going to happen. Um, also, trade relations were kind of, you know, wonky, and we didn't know whether our tariffs were, were, we were going to be hit by tariffs. And, you know, our factory was actually closed for several months. Um, but so when that this 
when the New York Times did write about us, the amount of support we did receive was really overwhelming. And, um, and that's continued. Um, and, uh, you know, it's so whereas there was fear before, I think I definitely have the conviction that we're here to stay. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, like I said, our tone and our, our, our um, attitude, you know, has shifted. Whereas back then we were coming from the defensive, we had to feel like, you know, we had to come up with a lot of points to answer when someone was like, so what makes your product different from Lagama? Today, we kind of hold up a mirror. It's like, why, why do you expect that our food should be cheap? Like, what is it about, you know, your frame of reference that makes you believe that? And some of it comes from, you know, uh, Chinese people as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it just shows you how deeply ingrained these um, views are that we um, have internalized as well as to our worth, right? And um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to pick up on one point because you were talking about the trade and the impact of the government actions on your business. And um, it made me think of some of Heather's work about how the government um, you know, has influenced a lot of what's gone on in, uh, with Chinese food in America. And I wanted to know, you know um, Heather, you talk about the sort of ironic story of the federal anti-Chinese laws spurring Chinese restaurants um, industry. I'd just love to hear, we have very little time left, but like a, you know, care about a little bit about that. Sure, I'll keep it short. Um, so there's a set of laws called the Chinese Exclusion Acts and it said no more Chinese immigrants starting from 1882. Uh, one of the exceptions that it made because uh, the United States was trying to improve relations, especially trade relations. We also had missionaries in, in China. Um, one of the exceptions to that rule is that uh, business owners, so what we call merchants and a set of other smaller categories were allowed to move back and forth between the United States. Um, very soon after that uh, law of 1882, Chinese started opening businesses as a way to sort of bypass the law. And um, in 1915, the US government recognized Chinese restaurants as an important sort of business uh, in the United States that uh, was transnational by nature and allowed then people who owned uh, Chinese restaurants to have a special right to move back and forth uh, between the United States. So that meant being allowed to visit your family it also meant being allowed to bring uh, relatives, uh, primarily your wife and children into the United States. And this is gendered because mostly men came to the United States, very few women, uh, another sort of backstory to that. But uh, one of, I think the surprising sort of revelations for me is that the early 20th century, the spike in the number of restaurants was really driven by a need to move back and forth, a, a need to stay connected with family. So the law is very much a part of how um, and why the Chinese became so invested in the restaurant industry, because it became one of the few opportunities to maintain those transnational, transnational networks. Um, but I really, if I may steal the last few minutes to ask a question to Jing, I, I have so many questions for you. Uh, but one of the things I was really wondering about is how do you see your product, your work, your story as maybe part of a generational conversation? There are, you know, so many, um, uh, I think uh, people who are, um, identify as Thai American or identify as Filipino American, uh, presenting their 
uh, culinary heritage, I think as well as a way to make uh, in intervention and stereotypes. And I was wondering if you see yourself as part of a, a larger generational conversation that is utilizing um, uh, media and as well as the power of your personal stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's uh, been a big part of um, me, the process of me sharing more of my story and through our rebrand that we did in November. Um, I think uh, we when we launched in 2018, we launched actually um, then because earlier that year in June uh, or April, I came to California, I went to Expo West, which is the largest natural food trade show in the world, pretty much. And I walked the halls and this, this is like the future of healthy eating in America, thousands of stalls, um, brands represented, and then the people walking in the halls are the gatekeepers, like the Whole Foods buyers, the, you know, so on. And um, I, I walked the hall just to kind of see what was in the market in the US. And um, I, what shocked me was how few, uh, you know, Asian flavors there were, there were pretty much like less than five, I could count. Um, and that's when I knew that that was a, like, I mean, that was just a huge shock to me, right? Because it's not representative of America, um, not, not representative of how we look or, you know, how we want to eat. And so um, when we launched in 2018, we were one of the first modern Asian food brands to exist. And since then, more and more <clears throat> have been coming to market. And almost all of them I know personally, because almost all of them have reached out and said that they were inspired when they saw us launch a Kickstarter to start their brands. And so that's the, that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing. And that's what is keeping us going, right? Because what I realized also, um, you know, in doing this rebrand in, in, you know, having our tagline be, it's not traditional, but personal, and for me sharing that very personal story that I did on, on our socials through our video um, <clears throat> of me, you know, embracing my name, that was something uncomfortable for me to do. But I realized that in doing so, I was allowing and creating space for others to do the same. And so what we're really trying to show is that we're not a monolith, like you, like you mentioned, where, you know, there's so many um, layers and, and so many complex you know, stories that all deserve to be told and to be heard. And um, and we are definitely you know, part of that uh, movement. And um, yeah, so that's for sure, um, I think, what our, um, what we're here to do ultimately. Well, thank you guys. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. It feels so brief. I have so many more questions for both of you. Um, but thank you, New York Historical Society for um, hosting us again and Valerie and, I can't wait till we all get to, you know, meet again in person. I'm just gonna um, one, sneak in one last thing. Favorite Chinese dish? For me, it's gotta be mapo tofu. It's just, yeah, it's so good. Heather? Coconut hot pot. In China, there's so many different hot pots and I love Hainan coconut hot pot. So okay. good. Thank you, I had to ask. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, courtesy of the New York Historical Society. Tune in next week for a new episode and have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.